0: Good morning, Christ City. My name is Heath, and I am part of the team of Christ City, only I generally spend my time in East Vancouver. Uh, it is my joy to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, last time I was with you, I, uh, I just had found out I became a grandpa, so in the last month I was able to go to Winnipeg and actually see my granddaughter, so it was really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I'm full of joy this morning in the context of fear that we just read. So let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you are the God that keeps record of our tears. We, we come before you and we worship you and we praise you because you are the God who is true to your word. What you say, you do. In this, we can place our resolute hope and trust in you. In your name I pray, amen. In his 1933 inaugural speech, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he was newly elected president of the United States, he famously said these words. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing that we have to fear is what? Fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, A leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you, you will once again give that support to leadership in these critical days. Wow. I wish in the last two years... One of our leaders would have said that to us. That's powerful. These words were spoken barely three and a half years after probably the greatest stock market crash ever in 1929. The crash crippled financial institutions and and markets across the world. It ushered the Great Depression of the 1930s. The Dirty 30s, as my grandparents called it, um, was probably one of the most devastating depressions in North American history, in living memory. Although not as extreme and not as dire. We have had our own dark days in the last few years, haven't we? Roosevelt addressed a nation, a nation in the context of a humanitarian crisis, an agricultural crisis, a manufacturing and financial crisis, a nation at the brink of collapse, people groaning under the weight of bankruptcies, unemployment, mass migration, and even starvation, as my grandparents attest to contrary to roosevelt's words really there was very much and a lot of things to be feared then but in the face of this national crisis what does he do in a brilliant pithy rhetorical statement he says look he asks this questions in whom in what do you fear what do you fear and he answers and he states and he says look Really, it's fear itself that holds you back. It's fear that causes us to retreat as people. It's fear that paralyzes us as a nation. And it is fear, this notion of fear itself that does this. He reduced hardships and real serious problems to the whole nature and notion of fear itself. Now, whether you believe the veracity of this statement or not, the root of all fear itself, you know, would you believe that? You have to understand and appreciate what he does here. What he says really Underneath that statement is, allow me. Allow me to navigate you through this dark times. Put your trust in me. Help me to overcome your fears. Help me lead you to a place of prosperity, out of fear, from instability to stability, to a place of trust. Put your trust in me. I will be your ever-present help in danger. I will be a bridge over troubled waters for you. See, the people heard this call. And Franklin D. Roosevelt is the only president to hold more than two terms because of it. Not only did he lead his people through the Great Depression, but he also led them through World War II as well. Now, almost 90 years have passed since that speech. <laughs> Ironically, um, it has become divorced of the meaning and the call to action. This statement, the only thing to fear is fear itself. We've, we've come to understand that as, oh, this is us. We can do this. We can overcome within ourselves. We have the power in and of ourselves to do this. It's, it's essentially the moniker or the um, slogan of our therapeutic age, isn't it? We have what is in us to overcome because fear itself is the problem. Now, this statement is part of our cultural, you know, consciousness. It's quoted from everything from TV sitcoms to cartoons and even Batman. Yeah. What Roosevelt tapped into really was a profound biblical truth that is located in our psalm this morning. In the face of crisis, in this face of great pain, in the face of death, we as a people need something to hang on to, don't we? a cleft in the rock to hold us there, to hide us, to shelter us, something to help us navigate fear itself. See, Roosevelt, it was a call to national patriotism, a call to look to him, to his political party, to trust him as its steward. See, Christ City, in your darkest hour this morning, who do you trust? And this is what this psalm deals with. So to, to deal with this, this psalm, I think, it's very personal for me and I know it's very personal for you, I could tell. We have to, it causes us to ask three questions. What is the foundation of our trust? How does trusting God actually remove fear? And lastly then, what can mortal men do to us? Turn back with me to verses one through four of this psalm. I'll read them again. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me my enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly when I am afraid I put my trust in you in God whose word I praise in God I trust I shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me what can flesh do to me Now, there is a transition that occurs in these first four verses that actually mirrors the rest of the psalm. And essentially it's this. The psalmist cries out to God. He laments. He says, this really stinks. He articulates his present tangible suffering. He's like, I've been trampled upon. There's, There's attackers that oppress me all day long. And then he confesses out loud that he is living in the context of fear. He is afraid. He acknowledges his fear of these people and these circumstances. And he confesses that in this context of fear, that he will, will trust in God. He doubles down in the later half of verse four. He says, look, I declare that I trust in God. And then he pronounces that he will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Sandwiched in the middle of this four verses is this little phrase says, in God whose word I praise. The psalmist roots his assurance, roots his trust in a God whose word is to be praised. Look at verses 10 11 the, down further on the psalm. He restates this trust again. He says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is not some ethereal, lingering hope. This is an expression of resolute, firm trust in the efficacy of God, that what he says in his word, his law, will true is true, will come to pass. Now the question is, what does this mean? Now, some of you didn't grow up in a church, like, what is this word of God anyway? I think what the psalmist is actually referring to here is this these reoccurring words of God that we express as covenants. Now, a covenant is like a formal agreement. And essentially you see this through the entire narrative of particularly the old testament, and you see this restatement after restatement after restatement, and, and this is agreement says, Look, I as God will do this. Line in the sand, I will be your God. You as the people will do this. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this agreement has been reoccurring throughout the entire narrative of the Bible. So turn with me uh, to the book of Exodus. If you have your paper Bibles, sure, that's great. If not, it'll be on the screen. Now, Exodus is in the second book of the Bible, and it's a narrative, and it deals with the beginnings of the nation of Israel. Now, we pick up the story in a time where the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They're without hope. They are oppressed upon oppressed upon oppressed. They're beaten and they're, they're causing, they have to do more work and more work with less food and less water. And they're, they're at their wits end. They're very literally oppressed. And in Exodus chapter six, verses six and seven, through Moses, God speaking to Moses here, and he tells Moses to go tell the people something. And he says this, God says, say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with them with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out of under the burdens of the Egyptians. Do you see it? I am your God and you are my people. So this morning we sang so many songs and it was interesting the no- to see the notes of oppression and slavery. I did not communicate with the, the people choosing the songs. But this is exactly what they portray. This event, I will be your God who will free you from slavery and you will be my people. So 400 years after harsh slavery in Egypt, God does the very thing that he promises to them. And in crazy and miraculous ways, you can read Exodus. It's brilliant. He takes and he gathers this ragtag group of like some 2 million people. And he brings them out of Egypt through miraculous signs and wonders. And he brings them to a new land. Now, it's a bit of a train wreck and a mess in the middle of all of that. But, you know, you can read that and find out for yourself. I won't give spoilers. See, God is faithful to his word. It is this God, this word that the psalmist praises. The psalmist shows us that in the face of real issues, even slavery itself, the loss of personal autonomy, through this trust in God, in his word, fear turns to trust. The result of which is praise and worship. The psalmist expresses a resolute, a confidence in the character of God. The very nature of God. The God who says what he says will come to pass. See, as you read in the Bible, you will see that this interaction is over and over and over and over and over again. What God promises, he delivers. What God says comes true. And the psalmist is picking up on that and he is relying and hoping and trusting in that God. The psalmist certainly isn't a God whose word is to be trusted despite present circumstances whether it's slavery, oppression, or anything else in between. God and his word are the foundation and the basis of the psalmist's trust. God is true to his word. Not like the shifting sands of patriotism or even the fickle, uh, capricious public opinion. And if you read further in Exodus, you'll see this played out. God and his word are the foundation and the basis for the psalmist's trust. Now, if you call yourself a Christian this morning, do you have that confidence in the face of fear? Do you have that confidence in the face of fear? Every single person here this morning has walked in with fear. See, maybe some sort of phobia, you know, like heights, snakes. Uh, Jake is the lead guy at Christ City East Van and I was babysitting his kids last week and and one of his, his sons is, deathly afraid of spiders. I'm like, why don't you have, why aren't you on the top bunk? Oh, I'm afraid of spiders. I'm like, okay. You see, fear could be something irrational conjured in our minds, like quite literally. I'm afraid of this thing. Chances are, if you phone me, I can almost guarantee I will let it go to voicemail. That is completely irrational. Sometimes, Christ City, the things that we fear, they control us. But see, far more serious than my fear of my phone is my abject fear of public speaking. Yeah, I bet you didn't figure that was coming next. God to Heath. Hey, I want you to go and preach and become a pastor. Heath to God. What are you, nuts? God to Heath. Oh yeah, and by the way, just so that you can, you know, get this through that I want you to do this. I want you to go do that in another country and in a language that you don't know. And by the way, you won't fully learn the language, so you'll look stupid all the time. Everywhere you go, you'll act and look like a toddler. Okay, sounds like a good deal to me. Hmm. Christ city, I am full of fear. Let me just tell you, the struggle is real for me. Welcome to my world. This morning, this morning I woke up nauseated with the thought of having to come here and speak. See, this narrative runs in my head every single time. It goes like this. It says, what if they don't like me? Or worse, what if they actually disagree with something I say? What if I make a complete fool of myself, which, by the way, I do most of the time? (sighs) What if they reject me? See, every time I stand before anybody this morning and I speak, this is what goes through my head. This fear. And without, this, without the truth that this psalm portrays, I am crippled, I am choked by fear. And that's just one of the myriad fears that I struggle with daily. Quite literally this morning, I have prayed. I have been confronted by the question of what can man do to me? I've had to place my trust in the God whose word I praise. Yeah, adulting is hard, isn't it? Now, some of you might be like me. You know, you've got these these weird irrational fears and they control our actions and and we take cues from our culture and we go, okay, I can deal with that. I can manifest my own reality and I stuff it down deep and it slowly creeps into everything until it actually affects you physiologically. But even worse than that and more serious than that, some of you here this morning, you're not dealing with a rational fear. You actually are in real places of hardship. You are in real areas of struggle. And like the psalmist, you are struggling for your very life. You're in the fight of your life just to survive. Enemies surround you and you have every human reason to be afraid. Now I have a friend that I've walked with in this past year who deals with suicidal thoughts every single day of his life since he was about seven. I do not make light of this kind of fear. With either situation, though, fear causes us to focus on our own circumstances and ultimately on ourselves. Like a beacon of hope, the psalmist this morning, he actually displays for us, for this morning, a better way, a different way, a trust in the God whose word is to be trusted. God and his word are the foundation and the basis for the psalmist's trust this morning. And this brings us to the obvious second point in the question of this is this some sort of call to christian patriotism you know a rhetorical ploy a fancy words leveraging the leveraging rather the promise of a future action and relief or is there something really of substance here the million dollar the billion dollar question is how does trusting god remove fear how does trusting god remove fear i was talking this week to an atheist friend of mine on the downtown east side and i was asking him some of his current struggles and his fears and I was explaining to him, trust in God. And he's like, <laughs> is this some sort of blind, cosmic, wishful thinking, Heath? How does the psalmist here, under duress, facing certain death, hounded by real enemies, how does this crippling fear be overcome by trust in God? How is that even possible? Now, in order, in order for us to understand this, I think it's good for us and helpful for us to dip into the historical narrative that is the basis and the background of this psalm. Now, what wasn't read in our text this morning, was this little bit at the beginning of the psalm that says this. It's part of the text, it's part of the Bible, it's not an added headline, but this is actually part of the Hebrew, and it says this, to the choir master, according to the dove of far-off Terebinth, uh, mitkam of David, when the Philistine seized him in Gath, and you're like, what? Say that 10 times fast. See, part of this blurb is liturgical, it gives instructions on, on how the psalm is to be read, or sung, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what tune to use. It's like it's like us going to a songbook and going seeing, oh, Amazing Grace, and going seeing at the fr- top, it says, okay, this song is to be sung to the tune of Happy Birthday. And you're like, oh, okay. You get the idea. But aside from that, there's a very real historical context. It says, a midcam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Well, this context places us, places the readers into the story. And these events occur in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it's a really weird story. If you're uh, not familiar where 1 Samuel is in the Bible, you can take your Bible and you can go about a quarter of the way in, open it up, and Samuel will be right around there. And what you get is a historical narrative, much like what I've described earlier, a narrative. And this describes the nation of Israel. They've come into a land. uh, They don't have a king. And so they're asking God, can you give me a king? And so Samuel, the prophet of God, anoints Saul as a king. Now Saul Doesn't fear the Lord, doesn't follow the Lord's precepts as good as he probably should. He's not an effective leader, and God, by Samuel, rejects Saul. And just for kicks and giggles, he anoints some random shepherd boy as a king. So this David, he's a simple boy, a shepherd boy, and he's called by God. He's anointed as king by Samuel, while, by the way, Saul is still king. Yeah, awkward. It's like Game of Thrones episode, right? David was filled, though, with God's spirit. David was empowered by God. Even to the point of facing Goliath from Gath. He was universally loved by the peoples. There's songs there, yeah, you know, Saul has killed his hundreds and David has killed his thousands, right? You can read that in Samuel. In the context of this psalm, though, David lives with the present reality of being anointed king of Israel yet hounded and pursued by Saul, the current king, on the run, fearing for his life. And in our text, the context of the psalm, David is on the run and he goes to the very place that is his very deepest, darkest enemy, to Gath, which happens to be the place where Goliath is from. You know, the dude, the tall guy that they chopped off his head? Yeah, this is where David goes to hide from his oppressors. And it gets weirder. He realized they, they recognize him, and then he's like, oh, no, now what do I do? And so what does he do to escape? He feigns insanity, drool running down the chin and the whole bit just to make sure he's not executed on the spot. Christ City, David knew fear. He knew hunger. He knew rejection. He knew what it was like to be hunted, fleeing for his life. And all that while being promised as the king. A king who was already, but not yet. Does that sound familiar? See, in this, and this is the context that we read in, in verse 5 of our psalm this morning. All day long they injure my cause. Now that makes sense, right? All their thoughts are against me for evil. Oh, it's clear. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they waited for my life. For their cause, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept the count of my tossings. Now, in the Hebrew, this word tossings actually could mean wanderings. You could say, you have kept the count of my tossings, my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are not they in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call this, I know that God is for me. What turns fear to hope, Christ's city? Was the security that David knew God and God knew David? Not only was God a transcendent God, a God to be feared and revered, like every, you know, like whatever all the other people's worship, but no, God was also with David, a very present time and a very present help in his time of trouble. God's spirit was with David. And you see this when you read the story, everything from his anointment to Goliath, all the way, including Gath. David relied on God. David holds on. David holds on to God who actually counts the tears of his suffering. Let that sink in. David had a God who who knew him so much that he knew how many tears he shed. David's trust was in a God who kept track of all the times when he was oppressed, when he was marginalized, when he had to flee for his life. David's fear turned to trust in a God who says that you are mine, David. You are my king. My hand is upon you. I have protected you. I will protect you. And I will make you a blessing to the nations. What turns fear to trust is that the psalmist, he knows God and that God knows the psalmist. It's in the relationship that we have that God turns fear into trust. And he gives the psalmist the confidence to say in verse nine, my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, I this I know for God is for me. What turns fear to trust then, Christ City, is knowing that God not only knows you, he knows me, but also he's for you. And he is for me, despite whatever present stresses and troubles you're in right now. This thing, it's this thing that helps us transition from fear to trust. Knowing that God has my back. How many times have you walked into a room and had a friend who knew you that stabbed you in the back most deeply? That's why it hurts most acutely. God is not like that. God is a God who has your back. He's... You're valuable to him. He knows you're languishing. He knows your sufferings and all the times when you've shed tears over oppression due to injustice. This is far more profound and far more significant than a rallying cry of patriotism and wishful thinking. Christ said, do you know what it's like, like the psalmist to have God with you? Do you know? Do you know that God has shed that you, or rather, the God knows the tears that you have shed. Do you know, in your deepest, darkest hour, in the worst of your crippling fear, that God not only is for you, but He is with you? Can you trust what the psalmist says in verses ten and eleven? In God I trust; in God, rather, His word I praise; in the Lord, whose word I praise; in God I trust; I shall not be afraid. Christ City. What turns fear into hope is resting on this God who is for you. This is the transition from focusing on the here and the now and our present situation. Focusing on the physical, but rather also to focusing on the eternal. The place where the physical meets the divine. Well, how is this possible, you say? Just because, you know, as my friend on the downtown East side said this week, says, just because you say so doesn't mean it's true, Heath. How do we know that God is for us? How do we know when you just sit there and you're like, "Ah, I'm just a regular Joe, I'm not a king. I haven't beheaded anybody lately. I'm not on the run. See, we have trouble believing these assertions that the psalmist gives that portrays David's life. We have troubles because we are just like the people in 1930s United States. We have succumbed to fear itself. And it's swallowed us in its situation. We don't want to admit we don't want to admit that like the psalmist highlights that we need something outside of ourselves to save us. Something outside of ourselves to surrender our autonomy to. Something outside of ourselves to trust in and to save us. Something outside of us that is so much greater that we have nothing but to do but praise. How do I know that God is for me and with me? Because God sees our helpless state. He doesn't just give a speech. No, he acts. He acts in history. He doesn't incite a robust patriotism. God acts, and the divine comes to us. The divine becomes physical. This is why Christmas is so significant. And if you hear those words out of my mouth, I'm like Mr. Grinch. This is significant. If I'm saying Christmas is a good thing, it's a good thing. See, God, this is the celebration that we have that God, the divine, becomes physical, and that's the hope that we have in our present situation. God inserts his son, Jesus Christ, into our plight, into our suffering, into our fear, and his son, he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are a burden. Come to me, let me take your fear. Let me take your fear, and I will free you. I will give you rest. And this is what makes Christianity different than every single other system of belief. Our longing. And our fear, it transcends to hope and to trust in the place where the divine and the physical meet, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, what the psalmist can only look forward to in hope and in trust, we actually look back to in hope and trust Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was trampled for us. He was oppressed. He was attacked. Jesus wept. He shed tears of blood for you and I. Jesus' enemies hounded him, and they laid wait for his life. He was executed for the crimes that I committed. I was on the downtown east side doing a Bible study on Thursday. And there's this guy, he's pretty messed up, living in fear. Yet he's got a resolute hope. And every time he mentioned this particular thing on Thursday, and he was just broke into tears because that is the reality of this statement. Jesus was abandoned on the cross so that God could be with you and I. It is through Jesus that the psalmist can assert in verse 13, right at the end, that our soul is delivered from death and that we can actually walk before God in the light of life because Jesus reconciles this broken relationship that we have. Christ city, our fear turns to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is for us and through the giving of his life, he is with us by his spirit. Christ City, what the psalmist looks forward to, we look back to. My response this morning is one of praise, is one of worship to the God who is for me and with me that gives me the courage and the hope and the trust that I can actually stand up here and not be afraid that my zipper is not up. This leads us to our final question what then can mortal man do to me? What can mortal man do to me now? See, if we ignore this, if we're like my friend, my atheist friend on the downtown east side, if we cannot see Jesus in this scenario, the answer is, man can do a whole lot of things to us. In fact, absolutely everything. And history is full of those examples. I can suffer greatly and be crippled with fear at the hands of another person. I have everything to lose without Jesus. But if we live in Jesus, if we live in the intersection of the divine and the physical, then this answer is something wholly different. See, Paul, he's writing to a group of Christians in ancient Rome and he he says these words because this church was struggling just like you and I do with this. And he says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, it's a bit of a long text, but I think it's very appropriate. Paul says this under the face of like, who do I trust? What can man do? And this is his answer. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised and is at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is how we know God is for us and with us, by this right here. Who shall separate us then from the love of God? Hmm. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword... Ooh, that's a long list of stuff. As it is written, it gets worse. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then with this big, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, part of struggling with learning another language, particularly Greek, is it's really cool, because the word behind more, there's a there's one word that's kind of translated more than conquerors here, and it's, and it literally means we are like hyper conquerors. Like we are more, we are, we are to the point where like there is nothing comparison compared to our conquering. So we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Christ's city, We are enveloped in the love of God who knows us and is for us. And through Jesus, there is nothing, life, death itself, and anything in creation that can actually separate us from that reality. And our only real response, Christ City, in the face of certain fear, in the face of death itself, is praise and worship to the God who can actually save us from these things. Christ City, Christ City, let Jesus turn your sorrow to joy. Christ city let your fear be turned to the trust in the God whose word is to be praised then in Christ city in whom shall we fear now as we close there's a lot of things to be afraid of we're afraid of some of us are afraid of masks some of us are afraid of vaccines some of us are afraid of coming back to church some of us are afraid of people not coming back to church, and we live in this constant state of, ah, what do we do? We are in uncertain times. What I want, like Roosevelt, is to, for, to be, remind you, place your trust in God, the one whom is to be praised. That's what we need to know, Christ City. We living, we're living in a time when I see, maybe not in my generation, but my kids' or my grandkids' generation, that, that quite a reality that Christians will be persecuted for being who we are. Decide now. What's the line? In whom shall I fear? When do I go to jail? And when do I don't go to jail? What do I hang on to? What do I trust in? Jesus Christ and God, whose word is to be praised. Please stand as we respond. God, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. We thank you that we, we know that you have sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be, to be the one who stands in my place before you, who, who dies the death that I deserve. Lord, I thank you that in that reality, I have no fear. I thank you that you have given me the courage to move continents, to learn another language, to speak before people. Lord, you see how weak and how frail and how feeble I am. And I give you praise because my life is changed in you. So in this, if somebody here is struggling right now, Lord, I I ask that you would comfort them, that you turn their fear into trust because you are worthy of such praise. In this I pray, amen. So Christ City, we will respond in a few ways. We will sing together. We will give. Christ City is your home. This is something that we do as a group. We we give and we give generously and we give joyously. Uh, There'll be other announcements on how that's done, but this is something we do in response out of worship and praise. We will pray together, we'll, we'll recite a prayer together, and we will take communion. So please pray with me. Christ City, let's, let's say these words, trusting God together. Dear Lord, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? I put my trust in you. You have put my feet on solid ground and delivered my soul from death. Help me, Lord, to fear you. You alone, to walk in the light as you are in the light, to confess my sin and to offer you praise. In the wondrous name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See, it's in this weekly event of communion that we confess that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we do not actually have to live in fear. As we break the bread and as we partake of the wine, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ dies so that we may live that we may be a people loved, that may we maybe we are people known by